We're in a world of change. Millions of dollars are being spent every day on psychologists and psychiatrists by people who want to change their behavior or on cosmetic surgery by people who want to change their looks. They want to think differently, look differently, act differently, and be different. They want to change. God says there's going to come a time when I will overturn, I will overturn, I'll overturn it. God can overturn your life also right now if you would let him. He can change your life. He can make you different. Jesus said our problems come from within. Your problems are not without. It's not the environment of your home or the neighborhood you live in or any of those other things. The basic problem is in your heart. And it cannot be solved by these superficial remedies that we bring, like alcohol or drugs or something else. It's solved by a revolution that God brings. I will overturn it, he says. I will change you if you will let me. God said, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Estimates are that his ministry reached 2.2 billion people through live events, television, radio, and printed material. 3.2 million people, and I'm one of those, came to faith in Jesus Christ through the ministry of Billy Graham. And what you just saw was about the time period in which I was an 11-year-old boy and trusted Christ as my Savior. Nobody doubts the impact that this man had used by God. Church historians can call the second half of the 20th century, and they do, the Billy Graham era because of the significant impact that God had on many, many lives through this great servant. He's one of the greatest servants of the modern era, undoubtedly. But today's message from God in his word is not about Billy Graham so much as it is about us. I'm no Billy Graham, and neither are you. But what about us? What does God have to say about our calling, the assignment that he has given each of his children? If you've put your faith in Jesus Christ as your personal Savior and trust him and him alone, you are God's child. But you also have an assignment, something that God is calling you to do, what he's calling me to do. None of us are a Billy Graham. But what about us? I want you to listen very carefully to these words because the parable that we will be looking at today says basically this. God does not equally grant abilities, but he does equally reward faithfulness. Let me say that again. God does not equally grant abilities, but he does equally reward faithfulness. Let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, as we continue our examination into this discourse, especially these parables where our Savior is teaching us what preparedness looks like, 
I pray that you will take this passage and impress it on our hearts that we will see beyond the here and now to matters of eternity by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. A number of weeks ago, Patty and I went down to Asheville, North Carolina. It was our fourth time that we have gone to the Billy Graham Training Center called The Cove. This time we went down for about five days to attend a conference where an Old Testament scholar, a man that I've been reading for years, was giving a 13-session lecture series on the lives of Elijah and Elisha. While we were there, I went down to the lower level and saw this. I took this photo. This is, um, this is down in the lower level of the training center that basically outlines the history of Billy Graham's ministry. So as you walk along that wall, you're able to read events that took place over different years. Um, he obviously had a great impact, not only with the common people of the public, but also with dignitaries, uh, presidents of the United States, his impact and influence was profound. And this wall gives you just a little bit of a picture of what it is all about. William Franklin Graham. What an impact that he has. But what about us? And that's the question we want to discuss today. We've been looking into the Olivet Discourse and studying the parousia, the Greek term for coming. We have seen that there are two parts to his coming. The first part is called the taking, where he descends down into our atmosphere. And the second is his final coming here on this earth and landing on the Mount of Olives that he promised he would do. He gave this discourse from the Mount of Olives. He ascended into the heavens from the Mount of Olives, and he is going to return to the Mount of Olives. And we'd love to have you join us in December to stand on the Mount of Olives with us. Jesus gives this discourse, but teaches us about preparedness for his coming. And he does it in a sequence of four parables. The second coming and the taking are both parts of his return and the parousia. The first parable is the parable of the unfaithful servant. The second parable that we looked at last week is the parable of the ten virgins. And today we're going to go into the third parable called the parable of the talents. And I would like you to turn there with me in Matthew chapter 24. This parable is addressing talents. Now when we think of the word talent in our modern usage, we're going to think of abilities. You saw some people up here today who are talented musicians, vocally, instrumentally, etc. People can be talented athletically or all kinds of different ways in which people show their abilities and their talents. But the talents of the New Testament in the first century were talking about a large sum of money. A talent was anywhere between 50 and 80 pounds of precious metals. So we're looking at large value. And this parable is defining a master who calls his servants to him and distributes different denominations of those talents. To one he gave five, to one he gave two, and to another one. And the parable centers around what they did with what he distributed to them when he went away on a long journey. 
So let's look at Matthew chapter 25, verse 14, and go through the parable, and then we will outline the interpretation of the parable as I understand it. For the kingdom of heaven, verse 4, is like a man traveling to a far country who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. And to one he gave five talents, and to another two, and to another one, to each according to his own ability. And immediately he went on a journey. Keep in mind that phrase, he gave to each according to their ability. Then he who had received the five talents, verse 16, went and traded with them and made another five talents. And likewise, he who had received two gained two more also. These first two servants had doubled what they had been given. It was 100% return. One received five and made five more. The other received two and made two more. Now their amounts were different, but their percentage of return was the same. Their amounts were different to start with. Their amounts were different to end with. But the percentage of their return was the same. These two servants both double their investment, and they end up receiving the same reward, which we'll look at in a moment. But the third servant is different. He had received one talent. And it says here, the one who had received one, verse 18, went and dug in the ground and hid his Lord's money. So instead of investing and seeking to double it, he hides it instead. Now we see already the implication in the parable that the one who had the one talent had the possibility of the same percentage of return. The issue of amount wasn't the same, but the opportunity for the percentage of the return was the same. The five made five, the two made two, and the one could have made one, but he didn't. Instead, he took his one talent, dug a hole, and put it in there for hiding and for safekeeping. Now, after a long time, verse 19, those servants, the Lord of those servants came, and he settled accounts with them. So he had received five talents, came and brought five other talents, saying, Lord, you delivered to me five talents, and look, I have gained five more talents besides them. And the Lord responds, his Lord responds to him and says, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things, and I will make you ruler over many things. Notice here, we have a two-part reward. A commendation, well done, good, and faithful servant. And second, you were faithful with a few things, I will make you ruler over many things, which teaches us that the reward is much more generous than the sacrifice that brought it. In other words, the master was very generous with his recompense. Instead of, you were faithful with a few, and I will make you ruler over a few, it's, you were faithful for, with a few, and I will make you ruler over many things. The master is very generous. 
Well, how about the one that had two? We go there. He also said in verse 22, he also who had received two talents came and said, Lord, you delivered to me two talents. Look, I have gained two more talents besides them. And his Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things, and I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Now, what's the difference between the Lord's response to the second service servant from what it was to the first servant? And the answer is, there's no difference at all. They're exactly alike. He replicated the words to the one who had two and made two that he had already given to the one who had five and made five. Their reward, both verbal commendation and the promise of rulership over many things, were one and the same. God does not equally grant abilities, but he does equally reward faithfulness. Now we have the third servant. He comes before his master. He says, the one who had received one talent, verse 24, came and said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you've not sown, gathering where you've not scattered seed, and I was afraid, and I went out and hid your talent in the ground. Look, there you have what is yours. I didn't spend it. I didn't use it for myself. I saved it for you. And now here, I want to give it back to you. But I didn't invest it because I was afraid. I, you're an exacting man. You, you're a demanding man. You expect return. I didn't think I could do that. See, I'm not that gifted. I'm not... I'm not sure I was able to do that. I was scared. So what I did do is I, I put it away so that when you come back, I can give it to you. And the master responds this way. He says, you wicked and lazy servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. In other words, you knew that I gave it to you not to hide it, but to invest it. You knew that that was the purpose of my giving it to you in the first place. If I just wanted safekeeping, I could have hid it myself. I gave it to you for investment purposes. And notice that he cuts through the chase and goes right to the point. It says you were lazy. And in their laziness, it's also wickedness because of your disobedience to me. So what comes about? He says, you ought to have at least deposited the money with the bankers, and at my coming I would have received back my own with interest, but you didn't even do that. You could have at least thrown it in the bank. Therefore, he says, take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have abundance, but from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away and cast the unprofitable servant into the outer darkness, and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. All three of these men are servants. 
I think it'd be a grave mistake to conclude that the last one was an unbeliever. He is also a servant, but he's an unprofitable one. Greek scholars will admit to the fact that this phrase, the darkness outside, is a better translation than the outer darkness, or at least equal to it. When we think of darkness and so forth, we tend to automatically think of eternal hell, but that doesn't have to be the case in a parabolic sense, in a story that it's used. But it's especially informative when we understand the first century culture of what takes place during the various festivities of weddings and homecoming and glorious and happy and joyful celebrations. Jesus speaks about the wedding feast throughout the book of Matthew. There's reference to it in Matthew chapter 8, where some will have the privilege of sitting down at a banquet at the return of the Messiah with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The wedding feast is also given in Matthew chapter 22, and the conditions that need to be met to attend that wedding feast. Folks, every believer is going to live in the kingdom for a thousand years, and every Christian is going to live on a brand new earth for eternity with Jesus Christ. But not every Christian will experience the joy of the wedding feast at the second coming. That is a special, joyful festivity that is preserved for the faithful who the master, who the groom, invites. Now, our master has gone on a long journey. He has left, and he's coming back, and he gives this parable. Two servants show faithfulness, and one does not. This last week, I have been in contact with an Israeli by the name of Miriam Vamash. She has a book called The Daily Life in the Times of Jesus that I always promote on our trips to our guests to purchase. She's from New Jersey. She emigrated in 1970 to Israel, and she has put together with her work in areas of archaeology and studies of the ancient Near East, a book that has artist depictions of various cultural matters of the first century, such as farming techniques, household uh, living, uh, religious practices, and one of them is the way they celebrated feasts, particularly weddings. And in her book is this depiction of a wedding feast. They're held at night. They were in a lit banquet hall. They included an abundance of food and entertainment and dancing and joy. Jesus said to these first two servants, enter into the joy of your Lord. But to the last servant, he says, take him and put him in the darkness that's outside. Miriam Vermash captured this with her knowledge of first century practices. Because outside in the darkness is a man looking in, wishing he could be in there. 
I've already shared with you that weeping and gnashing of teeth is an oriental phrase that depicts regret and shame. It's an expression of deep regret. And what we have here is the man who is excluded from the wedding feast, and he is outside where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Why was the one talent given to the one with five? Because five often carry a lot more responsibility. In all likelihood, Billy Graham is a five-talent man. He was given a lot, and he had a lot to deal with. But in that, he also had more challenges. He had security measures. People were trying to ruin his reputation. Life being threatened. Traveling all over the world. His privacy was invaded upon. His family time was limited. And the list goes on and on of the price that a five-talent man or a five-talent woman can pay. So the master says, you know, I'm going to take the one from the unprofitable and give it to the one who had five so that he will have even more. Our master has gone away on a long journey, but he's coming back and he's going to settle accounts, as our passage says. And that includes us. And as we go before the master, there will be a day in which a reckoning will take place of what he has given us to invest. The Bible says that each one of us has been given a spiritual gift. Let me read to you from Peter when he says, as each one of you has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. It's a stewardship issue. We've been entrusted with it, and now we are stewards to take it, utilize it, invest it, so that God can take it and multiply his work of what he's doing in bringing more and more people to Jesus Christ and believers to grow in him. I find it interesting that in this particular passage, Peter says that God gives us the ability which he supplies. God never gifts us with something to do or an assignment that he gives that he doesn't give us the ability to carry it out. It's his promise. Spiritual gifts are listed in the Bible in three main passages, and we won't be going there today. But there's a whole list of them of helps and mercy and giving and teaching and evangelizing, showing mercy to the hurting. The list goes on, and these are God-given abilities that he gives to each Christian. I personally believe he only gives one to each person. He gives a gift, Peter says, singular. We can't be a, an ear and a toe at the same time, according to the analogy that Paul gives about the body. But we each have received at least one. And it's important that we learn what it is and how we can implement and use it. But he gives us more than just spiritual gifts. He gives us abilities um, to carry out these things. For some, he gives the ability to work with their hands, and they're able to fix things or create things. Other people, he gives abilities with music or abilities in a whole variety of things. 
He gives opportunities. He puts us in places that we can utilize those gifts. We can utilize those abilities that he's entrusted us with. And there's a day in which he wants to settle accounts, and we're going to be able to see, as he outlines, what was done with what he entrusted us. There are numerous matters that will be evaluated when Jesus comes. It's called the judgment seat of Christ, only for believers, not to determine heaven or hell, but to determine who will rule over many things in the kingdom. And this judgment seat will cover a number of matters. It will cover how we treated one another. That's the parable of the unfaithful servant. It will cover how we have persevered or not persevered through trials and difficulties. That's the parable of the ten, ten virgins. And one of the factors will be the way in which we utilized what he entrusted to us. Are we sliding into home base? Are we continuing that each day that we have to be able to maximize the opportunities and the abilities and the spiritual gifts that he has entrusted us with? Let me say it again. God does not equally grant abilities, but he does equally reward faithfulness. It's true. None of us in this room were granted what God granted Billy Graham. But everyone in this room can receive the reward that he will give Billy Graham. Because he doesn't judge us on the basis of what he has given somebody else. He assesses what he has given us. The two receive the same reward as what the five-talent person did. He does not equally grant abilities, but he does equally reward faithfulness. I think that fear of failure and undervaluing our service and being a one-talent person can make us more vulnerable to laziness. We can excuse it and think, well, first of all, I'm not going to do a very good job in it, so I'm not near as gifted as so-and-so is. I mean, look at her. She can do it so well, and I couldn't do anything like she does. So. I don't even want to let it be known. I'm going to hide it. I'm going to even be, not even be let it known that maybe that's what I could be doing. Or there's just simple laziness. It takes too much work, too much time. The people that are fearful, not going to measure up to the standard. And the excuses come. And the master comes and says, uh, they don't hold water. You could have at least put it in the bank. You could have at least done something with it. One talent people who hide their talent are people who cannot see beyond their 401ks and their 403bs. That's as far as they can look into the future. It's as far as it goes to them. But not good and faithful servants. They see beyond that. They see an eternity. And they see a reward that will never fade away. So good and faithful servants do. 
And God never calls us to do what he will not enable us to carry out. And there are so many varieties of abilities in this room alone. Spiritual gifts. The amount of what is contained right in this room is beyond our imagination and how God wants to take it and multiply it for the advancement of his message and his kingdom and his cause. But folks, we need to remember that God highly values every one. He highly values every talent that he gives his own. We tend to look at people who go on speaking circuits and write books as more successful as those who are doing other things that are not noticed and certainly don't receive the acclaim. God says, I value, and I quote from the Apostle Paul, what every joint supplies. There is not one talent There is not one ability, there is not one opportunity that God does not see to the same degree of value as the ones that he gave to William Franklin Graham. When I was at the Cove, I saw lots of pictures of William Graham. They were all over, as portrait above the fireplace and But I want to share with you about another William that I met at the Cove. His name is William Long. His wife Nancy and he and Patty and I sat down for dinner the first night, ended up eating every meal together the whole week. Precious couple in their late 60s. Somebody had paid their way to attend this conference, and they were thrilled to be there. Bill worked for 39 years at a Bible camp in Wisconsin called Honey Rock, but he wasn't the speaker. He wasn't the administrator. He didn't come with his table full of CDs and books that would be for sale after the session, and he would be there to sign them. Bill was the maintenance man. Bill unplugged sewer pipes. He changed light bulbs. He mowed grass. He changed oil of mowers. He wiped up children's vomit who got sick while at camp. And the list goes on and on for 39 years. We know without any doubt that what man does not see, God does. And undoubtedly, over the course of those four decades, many young people and even adults came to faith in Jesus Christ at Honey Rock Camp in Wisconsin. And many believers were encouraged in their faith, and many believers came back to the Lord from wandering away and The list could go on and on, but we tend to see key players. God sees all the players. And every one of them is of equal value 
when they are simply obeying the assignment that God has given them. Bill Long had a part in those changed lives by mowing grass and making sure the faucets don't leak for 39 years. William Franklin Graham undoubtedly will rule over many things. I'm confident William Long will too. This parable also illustrates the power of words from the king. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Everybody likes to be complimented. Let's face it. Let's all admit it. We all like to get a compliment once in a while. A pat on the back is something special to each of us. And there's times that we could receive a compliment and say, boy, that really made my day. <laughs> if it's a really good compliment, you might think, boy, that really made my week. How'd you like to get one that makes your eternity? How would you like to get one that when you first hear it, it will never fade away? How would you like to get one that millennial times away, thousands of years down the road, it will say I'll have the same impact and be as precious to you then as it was the moment you heard it? What a reward to have an eternal compliment to relish in. And it's waiting for anybody who simply does their assignment. Any believer who obeys and follows through with what God had given them to do. He holds me accountable only for what he has given me, not for anybody else. And I want to urge each of you, don't compare. Don't compare yourself to anybody. If you're a teacher, don't compare yourself to another teacher. If you've got the gift of evangelism and sharing Christ with unsaved people, don't compare your results with their results. It'll lead either to pride or discouragement, but there's no in-between. Avoid comparison at all costs. 1995, Patty and I went to Western North Dakota. And like they often say, it's not the end of the world, but you can see it from there. We are 80 miles from a stoplight, a small prairie church. There was no growth in our community. Every funeral meant the population numbers went down one, and that included our church. And when we arrived in 1995, we had 80 people attending that small church in the prairie made up of ranchers and farmers. And nine years later, we left, and there were 60. Most of the 20, I did their funerals. It was not a successful ministry in the eyes of many who you can write articles and read articles or hear testimonies at schools about somebody that started a church in a living room and five years later they're this amount. And that's good. God does that for some people. He does give that opportunity. And we should not in any way degrade that. When church growth takes place and many more people are being impacted and come, but always remember, the bottom line is not fruitfulness. 
The bottom line is faithfulness. Not well done, my good and fruitful servant, but well done, my good and faithful servant, because only God can measure the dividends. We have no clue what he has done and is doing with any investment of our lives. I thought about this and thinking about our own context here at FBC to urge us to remember that we live before an audience of one, the king. I couldn't help but think about a man in our church who on the first Saturday and Sunday nights of December he pulls up these yellow rubber gloves. Now, in his history, he had a very good career as a pilot for one of our major airlines. But in retirement years, he told me, he says, I just feel drawn to do this. And our, our event of Follow the Star, he commits himself every year to making sure that those Johnny Blues stay clean. I wouldn't say that's the most attractive job in the world, nor one that I'm drawn to, but he is. But I do know that there are thousands of people during those two nights that hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he has a real part in that by keeping those little bathrooms clean. Most don't see it. God does. Those of you in the back section in the middle part of our worship center here, you're sitting in a comfortable seat right now because of Jerry. Jerry was here last night after FSTAT, stays longer so he can set up your chairs, that you have a place to sit and to worship and to listen. Man doesn't see that, but God does. But better yet, we often don't value it. And God says it's as high a value as William Franklin Graham, if that's what I've called him to do. I think of a woman named Beth who has devoted herself and another woman to prayer. Nobody sees them in the context of their living room as they pray for many of us and our needs. Prayer's hard work. It's not for the faint of heart. To do it effectively, it's hard work. It's what God's called them to do. And what God calls us to do changes in life based on various circumstances, but there's no sliding into home base for good and faithful servants until the day he calls us home. I think of John who visits people in the hospital as a volunteer because of his compassion for the hurting and assists our pastoral staff in visiting the sick of FBC. I think of Jim and Diane who go down and swing hammers to build an orphanage in Guatemala, not paid a dime for it. But it's, they, it's what they believe God has called them to do. And the list goes on and on and on and on. Because God does not equally grant abilities, but he does equally reward 
faithfulness. I love that about him. He's so generous. He doesn't make distinctions like we do. And don't ever forget that. William Graham will rule. William Long will rule. And so will a number of you. Who are the greatest servants of the modern era? Well, God has a list a lot longer than we do. And I'm confident some of you are on that. May we all desire to be. At this time, Scott Newland will come and lead us in prayer. Let's uh, go before the Lord as we close this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be here, to freely gather and worship, to sing your praises, and to hear your words lifted out, spoken, that bring challenge sometimes, as well as just information. Lord, we, we know that in our midst and in, among us there are many who are hurting and struggling with sickness and disease and brokenness and the various issues that are the trials and tribulations of living in a lost and fallen world. This morning, especially, I want to lift up uh, Sherry Grant, who lost her husband Gary a couple of days ago. They were faithful attenders at the F1 service. Gary was a, a gentle giant of a man who loved the Lord and eagerly looked forward to his entering into his presence with praise and thanksgiving. We lift up Sherry and the rest of the family who has been left behind to, to deal uh, with the issues that remain and in the uh, and they will experience his loss and his separation. Lord, we thank you for uh, Don's message this morning. We know that God opens doors of opportunity for each of us. Matthew's parable illustrates the power of God's word as the king speaks. We know, Lord, you are able to do more than we can even think or ask. We know that you don't, you won't recognize fear as a reason or an excuse for our failure to respond to your call. We know that God will hold us accountable one day for all that he has entrusted to us and no one else. May we all be found to be a good and faithful servant when that judgment day comes. May each of us hear those words we long to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, as we stand before the Lord in the judgment seat of Christ one day. May we be reminded that as we serve God best when we serve each other. For truly, God does not need 
a thing. But he calls us to serve and to serve him by serving the one another's he's placed around us. God, we are trusting that you will guide, equip, sustain, bless all the ministry that's put forth here at FBC as we begin a new ministry year, as we look forward to a new season, a fall and a winter and another year of serving the community and the world around us through global missions, but also the one another's that you bring through these doors each and every week. God, encourage us to faithfulness as we serve your sheep here at Fellowship Bible Church. May you be glorified, Lord, in the service we render. And we thank you, Lord, for the opportunities and the privileges we enjoy each day and each week. May God be glorified in us and through us as he enables us to step up and step out in service to him. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.